Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. This afternoon, um, we have a, a guest uh, who's going to be preaching with us. As Cody was praying um, for RUF, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, which is our denomination's college-based ministry. And um, a good friend and uh, and friend of um, uh, I guess uh, of our families and um, uh, the RUF campus minister at the University of Houston, Brooks Harwood, is uh, is here and he's going to be preaching for us. And um, we've kind of been going through a series on wisdom, and that's, again, though it won't be in Proverbs, we're still going to be talking about uh, the elements of what it means to be wise, um, and to be wise in, uh, in light of our, our sovereign and loving Lord. Uh, Brooks is from Nashville. And, uh, and was the RUF intern at Vanderbilt, where like half of our congregation went. Um, and, uh, and so um, uh, he then went to uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And I believe um, his wife Meredith used to cut the hair of my, my brother-in-law while they were in St. Louis, which is also a very strange, you know, circular way of happening. But we're so glad to have Brooks here to share uh, the word uh, and, and to preach for us. So, Brooks, thanks so much, man. Check, check. There we go. Um, that's funny. You cut everyone's hair, apparently. Um, yeah, she was a hairstylist in, um, in St. Louis. But, uh, yeah, it's good to be with y'all. Um, really grateful for, for Taylor. Grateful that, um, this is, this is here. We, we did a campus ministry association meeting, um, in late May, uh, in here. So Rabbi Kenny, uh, is also, he, he, works at Rice and University of Houston, so he'd open up the space here. So I was driving up, and I was like, I've been here before. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for letting me do uh, Ecclesiastes. So, uh, we did this this past spring, and it's if you don't know anything about Ecclesiastes, it's a weird little wisdom book right in the middle of the Bible um, that essentially, in a nutshell, if you wanted to really summarize it, it basically says that, that life is great and not great all at the same time that it's awesome and awful, that there are things to look forward to, and there's also things to not look forward to, and it's all jumbled together. Um, and that is ma- that's like pushed into your face the entire book. It's, it's difficult to read through the whole way. It's difficult to preach through. <laughs> um, but it's a good book. It's a sobering book, and hopefully it, it kind of leaves you with some hope. Um, I think the way that I think that it speaks to us is that it, it tries to make sense uh, of a world that seems kind of senseless to us. And the author's point is that God actually makes sense of all this. However, he doesn't do it when you want him to. He doesn't do it how you want him to. That's essentially Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. And here in Ecclesiastes 9, um, the focus is that what's predictable in life is death. What's unpredictable in life is everything else. (laughs) You know, so when I... um, I was a freshman in um, in high school. I had uh, a date that night with a girl named Pringle, and yes, her name is Pringle. And um, 
I went to my first soccer practice uh, that night. It was Valentine's Day. And um, I sprinted after a soccer ball, and I kicked it. This was not an exceptional kick, but I ended up breaking my back, kicking a soccer ball. That's possible. (laughs) Um, Ended up getting into a body cast for three months. Uh, Much longer story there, Um, but I healed. But because uh, when I got into the body cast, um, it ended up uh, overlapping with my 16th birthday. So I was so excited to drive. I had to wait even longer to drive. When I finally got out of the cast, got my license, started driving, every responsible 16-year-old male does is I drove. My friend John Mark was driving in front of me. I was driving behind him. I started listening to metal music. That's what I listened to then. And he and I were going relatively slow. And I started headbanging in the car. That's what you do when you listen to metal music. And I rear-ended John Mark, causing about $5,000 worth of damage in my mom's Honda. And I could actually <laughs> I could keep going more and more and more throughout that year. What I, the reason I tell you all that, just so you can know what an idiot I was back then, but I want you to see that life, I could never have predicted that year. I could have never predicted how that year would have gone. I could have never predicted the back-to-back-to-back problems, the ups and downs, but that, that was my year. Um, the question that you and I have when stuff like that happens is, does he care? Does God care? And does he even uh, approve of me? Does he even, is he even involved in a good way in my life? Is he on my side? Those are the questions when hard stuff happens. Um, and that's what this author deals with here. So um, if you have a Bible or you just want to look in the, the pamphlet, I'm going to read starting verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm going to go all the way to verse uh, 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts, while they live, and after that, the good of the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God's already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil in which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly 
falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. It sounds depressing, but it's not a promise. Um, so you need God's care. Um, I, one quick aside, who's the author? Um, I believe that this author is not Solomon. You can talk to me or to Taylor about this afterward. Martin Luther started arguing this in the 1500s. This is what I think is happening. This is an author who's channeling the life and the teaching of Solomon in order to uh, show that somebody who had it all and did it all still could not make sense of pain, problems, and death. He's using that as kind of like a picture, a life picture for us. When he, when he channels these, these wisdom sayings together. And, um, you know, the one, the one thing that he pushes in the beginning is that your life is in the caring hands of God. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, But all this I've laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Um, he's saying the only way for you to live a full life is if you, you know that you're in the hands of God. It's like that African-American spiritual, we got the whole world in his hands, you know, he said, that, that song says it like eight times, really trying to drill in the fact that like your life is being held by God, his good, caring, powerful hands. Here's the issue, and it immediately comes up in this verse. You might go, yeah, I'm in God's hands, but look at the second half of verse one. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him, meaning I don't really know if God's on my side or not. I I think I'm in his hands. I just don't think they're always good. <laughs> I'm not sure. This is the question that's, that's brought up for us here. Um, why? Because when life gets really hard, this is our question. Especially this. It's the predictability of death that really cues us off. In verse 2, it says, The same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked. Verse 3 and evil and all that's done under the sun, this is what he's seen, that the same event happens to all. Verse 12, for the man does not know his time. He's snared at an evil time. He gives the image of basically that all of us are like birds and fish swimming along and a net comes and bam. He says that's death. We just don't know. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know what's going to happen. And here, I mean, you look, you look at even the, the word death, it, it's all over the place. In verse 3, it says, they go to the dead. Verse 4, he talks about a dead lion, which is a funny little proverb that he gives there. Verse 5, the living know they'll die, but the dead know nothing. Verse 10, he talks about Sheol. This is the place of the dead. He says, the, the thing you can count on in life, sadly, is death. And then he talks about the thing that's unpredictable, which is life itself. This is verse 11. It's interesting how he phrases all this, but he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who have knowledge. Chance happens to, happens to them all. His point is, we tend to think that life is totally in our control. If I do the right things and I achieve the right things, the right things will happen. And he says, that's not true. Because life just happens to us. You can do all the right things and the wrong things happen. And he says, this is what you can predict. This is life. And so we ask, I mean, this is true. We had to be honest about this. We ask, God, do you care? Are you involved at all? Um, what do we do? We don't think he cares, or maybe you think he's you know, in control. And I think really, if, if we're honest, if we think he's in control, we just don't like the control that he has. We don't like, he, we don't like what God's doing with the control that he has. 
And so we try to take it back. That's what we do. We try to take it back. And in here, in, in this passage, he names three different ways, but there's probably a billion others. The ways in which we try to take back controls, we perform our way into the life that we want. We do it morally, we do it immorally, we do it perfectionistically. Look at this. In verse 2, he talks about this moral way of performing your way into the life that you want. You know, in, in verse 2, there's all kinds of religious words. It talks about the righteous and the wicked, good and evil, clean and unclean, sacrifice, no sacrifice, the good versus the sinner, those that make oaths versus those that shun them. This is the, he's describing the person that essentially says, I go to church. <laughs> I do good things. Like, I've tithed to God. I, I care for people. I care about justice issues. Like, I'm doing things that are close to God's heart, and these are all good things. And yet he says, yeah, but those things, those moral things, don't stop pain, problems, and death from coming your way. You know, you know how you know you're actually doing this if you, if you think you're trying to morally get something from God is when you don't get what you want, you get pretty angry. That's not to say that anger, there's a whole, whole book of Psalms that are full of songs to God that are full of angst and pain and honest vexation to God. That's good. I'm talking about the kind that, that at the bottom is, God, I've been good. You owe me. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? And you're mad. I get mad. He says, this doesn't work. The moral way to perform your way into the life you want won't work. Then he names an immoral way. You immorally perform trying to get the life that you want. This is in verse 3. It talks about the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. This is the person that essentially says, I don't really care if God's there or not. I'm just going to build the life that I want how I want. It's not always the, I don't know, Sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Though, and that's not all bad. But, you know, like, the rock and roll's not bad. But, you know, it's like, this is the life of escape. This is the life that says, I'm going to do whatever I want, however I want, to make me feel good. It's very, um, you do you is the best way to be happy. And he says, this won't work. Because pain, problems, and death still happen to you, even if you live immorally. Same event happens to all, right? And then perfectionistically, this one should touch on all of us. Like we, we, we live in a culture or a society that basically is um, on overload all the time. Why? Why are we workaholics? Why are we so busy? This is me completely. I mean, when I, when I see this, this is so true. This is why uh, he brings this up in verse 11, talking about you know the swift people or the people... Uh, who are good at agriculture, the people that are strongest in battle. He's saying, you know, you tend to think that the people that are really excellent in all these things, they'll be able to maintain some type of control over their lives. We do believe this. Like, I think, if I think, if I I become fit enough, smart enough, (laughs) skilled enough, likable enough, if I do enough ministry, tailor me, you know, if I... I do, whatever enough is for you, I'll get the life that I want. And he's saying that's not true. It's not true. You know, um, Steve Jobs, a lot of y'all know many things about Steve Jobs, but um, 
There are 1.8 billion Apple products on the planet right now. That's a lot. Uh, he started uh, Pixar. He started Apple. Um, he thought he had kidney stones, so he went in to get a CT scan back in 2003, and it turned out that he had pancreatic cancer. Um, that's what most people know about Steve Jobs. What people, what a lot of people don't know um, is what happened after that. So he had a biographer that met with him uh, before he passed away. Walter Isaacson was his name. Um, and he met up with Jobs and asked him, what happened? What were the events that happened after you were diagnosed with this cancer? By the way, the pancreatic cancer that he had was very treatable um, at the timing that it was, it was given to him and all that stuff. Jobs decided against the counsel of his friends, his family, uh, and the doctors to be able to uh, go at his own treatment. So he decided to do his own diet and then Buddhist meditations in order to fix his body. Um, and Isaacson, the biographer, said that Jobs had this uncanny um, way of thinking that you could think your way and work your way through your problems. Uh, and he did this for nine months. Uh, and eventually the doctors, they, they rescanned him and said that the cancer had spread to a point that was um, unworkable. Um, he then flipped his approach. He got a liver transplant. He did the most cutting-edge experimental treatments that they could find all over the world. So he ended up listening after the nine months, but it was too late. In 2011, eight years later, he died at the age of 56. Before he died, he told the biographer, I regretted doing all that. I don't bring him up, by the way, to knock Steve Jobs. I'm not making a comment on his life in that way, but I'm bringing him up to say, that really is us. We believe the same thing. If I'm just, if I can just do enough, I'll get there. And, it, and, and, and really, the author of Ecclesiastes is kind of pleading with us to say, that's not how life works. And when when pain and problems and death come, are we going to trust that we're in God's hands or go out our own way? That's our option. Because I really do, I think, our main, I think our main problem at the end of the day is that we think we're in God's hands. We just don't really know if they're good. He's permitting things into our lives that we just wouldn't choose for ourselves. We don't know why he's doing what he's doing. You know, when I was very, very little, my parents, when I was about one year old, my, my parents divorced, um, which led my mom to um, rely on my grandparents for some financial help. And uh, when I was 17, my grandfather passed away of lung cancer, which then sent my mom and I into kind of a financial spiral. That led me to go find work. Ended up getting a landscaping job at a guy's house named Pat. And Pat was a Christian. He really loved me. He invited me into his family. I ate a lot of their food because I was a junior in high school. Um, I, because of Pat, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but because of his kindness, I began to uh, look into Christianity as being possibly true. And so I started reading the Bible and started asking questions, and I became a Christian after about a year or two of that time. I went off to college, uh, and a senior in college at the time, who I hadn't seen in forever, 
he invited me to this ministry called RUF. And I was like, sure, I want, you know, I'm a new Christian. I want to go to this ministry called RUF. And so I went and ended up meeting all these great people and was being cared for and poured into. And I met this girl named Meredith who eventually became my wife, you know, and we, um, that led us uh, to choose to do the RUF internship, which Taylor talked about, put us in Vanderbilt for a, lo- a number of years. And then we decided to move to St. Louis for me to go to seminary, for her to style hair. And, um, and then this job came up for RUF here, which we chose to do that. And as we moved here a couple months after, we had our first daughter, Sophie, who's down there somewhere, and then our second daughter this past summer, June, uh, a year ago. Um, I tell you all of that, this is, I, this is a long way of saying this. If God didn't permit my parents to divorce, and he didn't permit my grandfather to die of cancer, and then he didn't permit us to go into the financial issues that we had, perhaps I wouldn't have sought out Pat to do some landscaping. I would not have been exposed to his kindness, which came from Christianity. Maybe I wouldn't have even looked into Christianity because of it. I definitely wouldn't have gotten involved in RUF. I wouldn't have met Meredith. Our kids wouldn't exist, and I wouldn't be standing here right now. I couldn't have told you that back then, that that's my life. This is not a story. This is real. <laughs> and you can pinpoint something for yourself that's that way. Something hard. Something painful. Could God be using it for some good at some point in time? You know, when I, when I was really little, we used to go across the street um, to my friend Genna's house. This was across the street from my, grand, uh, my grandma. And Genna, his dad was from Russia, and he was a painter, and he painted gigantic paintings that were the size of a wall, basically. Uh, And us as little seven-year-olds would stand up in front of it, get really close, and have no clue what was happening. You know, it was just a bunch of, like, dots and colors and swirls, and we didn't know what was happening at all until you stepped back. Then all of a sudden, you saw that it was a beautiful painting. That's God's perspective of our lives. Our pain and problems are right here in front of our faces, and it looks like nonsense sometimes. But from his perspective, he's painting a beautiful painting. It just doesn't look like it (laughs) at times. Could it be that his hands are good, but really complicated, and they're holding our lives? That's the only way you're going to live to the fullest in the midst of all of this, is if he's holding you. That's the first thing. The second thing, briefer, I promise, more briefly, um, would be that he's not just caring, but that he's approving of you. You don't just have his care, you have his approval. His approval actually fortifies that first one. You know he cares if he approves. This is, this is what he starts to talk about. When he says in verses 4 through 6, um, talking about this living dog is better than a dead lion, he's basically saying that an ordinary life is great. So he's saying, like, a, a, back in their day, dogs were not like Pomeranians. They're, they're nasty scavengers. People didn't like them, right? So he's saying a living dog, kind of the lowliest, you know, most ordinary life is better than a regal lion life who's dead. He's just saying life's good, period. And he's trying to emphasize this. And this is when he says in verses 7 through 10, uh, talks about these... Uh, these great things that we should do in life. Uh, a lot of commentators call this the seize the day passages. These are the um, go and enjoy everything that's there. 
And he says it here, he has five imperatives, like five, go do this. He says, um, go eat and drink, verse 7, enjoy in verse 8, do in verse 10. He's saying, go live the life that God's given you to the fullest, which sounds really counterintuitive, plopped right in the middle of the passage that (laughs) we're digging in right here, right? Um, Why? Why does he say this? He's saying that basically, if God approves of you, it'll make everything in life better. It'll make everything in life actually somewhat enjoyable. If he's actually on your side, if he actually cares. He's saying you can enjoy stuff because he accepts you. You know, at the time of Ecclesiastes, they, uh, every God follower would have um, known that the book of Isaiah speaks about a servant who's going to have to come one day in order to um, be a sacrifice for us. They knew that the only way to be able to relate to a perfect God is if an innocent sacrifice takes our place. And then Isaiah comes along and starts talking about a servant who's going to do that, to take the place of our sins. This is Isaiah 53. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. They trusted in the fact that God would accept them, not because they were acceptable, but because someone else would be. This is the time of Ecclesiastes. And you fast forward to the time of Jesus and his ministry. He said a lot of weird things. If you've been a Christian a while, I think you, you might overlook the fact that Jesus said a lot of strange things. One of the things that would have been very, very strange was in his first public sermon in Luke 4, he says, I'm the servant spoken of in Isaiah. He's going to take your place for your sins. I'm the way in which you and all your guilt are going to be completely accepted by God. Really, I mean, he didn't talk about Ecclesiastes, but he's saying, I'm the way that God approves of you, the way in which it's spoken of here in Ecclesiastes, that's me. Because when when Jesus was on the cross, what, what you eventually begin to see is that he is treated as if he's guilty, so that we who really are guilty are treated as if we're guiltless. It's just an awesome exchange happens. That in some way, God disapproved of Jesus on the cross, so he would approve of you forever. That's wonderful. And it's not based on what you do. This is, this is why Jesus' last words were, it's finished. Wouldn't it have been awful if he said, you know, keep going? <laughs> His last words were, it's finished. The approval that you and I most need before God was done 2,000 years ago. It's done. It's done right now. It's completely finished and completed. Which, what does that do? Why, why would this help us to enjoy things? Because you're off the treadmill. You don't have to work for his approval anymore. You don't have to do anything to get it because you already have it. That's why he just explodes in verses 7 through 10. He's saying you can love life. You know, uh, 2007, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Boy's me, Meredith is girl. Uh, we're in, we're involved in RUF at this time. I'd met her prior, um, but we went to a Halloween dance. She was workout Barbie. I was dressed up as a woman. Sorry. Um, I so I my friends were a dad, and we had our two other friends were our babies. But anyway, so um, I'm there dancing around, and here's the thing: 
I really liked Meredith immediately. And I think what, what was coupled with having a lot of fun was also a lot of worry. Like, does she like me back? Is she going to, you know, does she, does she think I have anything to say? You know, is she weirded out by the fact that I'm dressed up like a woman? Like all these like very good questions, right, to be able to uh, dig into. And then we went to Wendy's after. I love Wendy's. Uh, and yet again, I was worried. Is she going to sit with me? Is she going to talk with me? Like, I love the spicy chicken sandwich from Wendy's. It was just less good because I was so worried if she would actually accept me. But then when I realized after we dated for a little bit that she accepted me, and especially when we got married, guess what? I don't worry about that. I just started enjoying things with her because I know that she's for me. I don't have to be concerned like a freshman boy (laughs) if she likes me or not. Everything in life gets a lot better when the person you like likes you back. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying, God likes you. He's on your side. So go and enjoy stuff. I'll end with this. This is is the practicals. Four C's, because I'm a pastor, so we alliterate stuff. So what does it do? It should give you contentment. This is why in verse 7 he says, Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. He's saying enjoy food, enjoy drink, because it's good. This weird thing in verse 8, garments be always white. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In a hot climate, white clothes would have been good. (laughs) And oil is kind of like lotion. You know, and so he's just saying, look, food tastes better. When somebody like likes you back, clothes feel better. When somebody like likes you back, he's saying God likes you. Go put on your favorite pair of jeans and eat a burger and enjoy it. Go, amen. Go, go watch Netflix and enjoy it. Go on a walk today if you want to sweat and enjoy it. You know, um, do do these things because God already approves of you, so you can be content. You can also celebrate more. There's celebration. Everything that he says to do is in the plural, meaning he's talking to a group, not just individuals. It's so overlooked by a lot of us because we're Western. We're good Western individualists, um, but he's talking about a community here. And Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, and he made a ton of wine, not because he's pro-drunkenness, because he's pro-fun, <laughs> Like we we tend to think that Jesus is this kind of boring, do this and don't do this. He wasn't. He really loved the people that he was with because he knew that this is the life you're meant to live. Like the spiritual life is throwing a party. The spiritual life is having a good meal with someone you love. The spiritual life is going to exercise. The spiritual life is doing your work. That's spiritual. It might not seem like it, but it is. So you celebrate things with people in a different way, especially if God approves of you. Third, companionship. He focuses on spousal companionship. This is verse nine. Enjoy the life, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. So for those of us who are married, for me, saying, Brooks, stop freaking out all the time about life and all the things you can't control. And just go enjoy your wife. <laughs> enjoy time with her. Enjoy the day. But it extends past that to every relationship you have. Like, build, build friendships with people. Stop looking at all the reasons that you dislike everyone around you and maybe consider you might like them if you give them a shot. 
And it comes back to, because God already approves of you. God didn't wait for you to be approvable. He disapproved of you. So why do we wait for you know, other people to earn our approval? He's saying companionship should grow if this is true. And the last thing, commission. This is why he says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because you're doing it for a different reason now. Like if you're a student, the test you're working toward won't make God love you more. If you're working, your job won't make God love you more. If you're a parent, your parenting won't make God love you more. If you're in ministry, (laughs) me, Taylor, (laughs) doing ministry won't make God love you more. He already loves you because of what Jesus has done. So you can now do things with all your might and you're free. I need this desperately. <laughs> so I'll leave you with this. If, if, you know, one final thought. You're struggling with things going on in your life right now. The encouragement would be to slow down and enjoy what's right in front of you. Because you can. Because God cares and he approves of you. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this word. Uh, as difficult as it uh, can be. Uh, but it is so deep. And so rich, I'm thankful for a book like Ecclesiastes. I pray that you um, would use this in our lives uh, in whatever way you see fit. Um, Build us up, challenge us, um, help us to become more free, and to actually go out today and enjoy uh, what's before us, even in the midst of things and all being right. So I put this in your hands in the name of Jesus. Amen.